2: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today.
3: Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome
1: to episode 30 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I am joined by the hilarious and wonderful Natalie Haynes, a stand-up comedian, author, broadcaster, and classicist. I first met Natalie when I was asked to interview her back in March 2021 for a Save Ancient Studies Alliance live author Q&A event. In preparation for that event, I blasted my way through her, at the time, new novel, A Thousand Ships. Ships is Natalie's retelling of the Homeric epics and other famous myths, all from the female perspective. It's an excellent read, and I highly recommend it. After that event, I immediately asked her if she would appear on the podcast, and was truly delighted when she agreed. I was excited to ask her about her early hyper-focus on classics, how She learned to meld stand-up comedy and classics into a unique career path, got her thoughts on why academic writing is often bad, boring, and made to be inaccessible to a wider audience, and finally, about learning rules in order to break them. Props to Natalie for being such a good sport as I tried to condense, like, a million different thoughts and questions into what I hope ended up being halfway coherent questions. Apologies, but my mic did die toward the end of this recording, so if you notice a slight change in my audio, that's why. Anyway, enjoy the humor and the banter. I hope you all learned something from this great conversation, and I'll see you all soon. Hello, and thank you for joining me today. I want to just get right into it and ask you, how did you discover the world of classics, and how did you know it was quote-unquote right for you?
4: Hmm. I discovered it young because I started doing Latin at 11, I think, or 12, which is, is pretty young, I think, now to study it. And Greek, I started doing at 14. So I did triple classics A-levels. So that's the final year exams in the UK. And I took Latin, Greek, ancient history. So I was really committed, really, really young. And I don't know exactly how I knew it was right for me. I, I, I really liked Latin. And I think that's often true. With I, I was good at maths and things like that more than you know english or creative things i was good at you know maths is basically or arithmetic anyway which is i guess most of what you do at, at primary school here is like substitution codes for the most part isn't it you have to read symbols and they stand in for meanings and Latin is a lot like that when you start and then suddenly, of course, you kind of turn a corner and realise you've been tricked and that you've come in on this kind of mathematical premise. But now it turns out you have to understand, you know, the greatest poetry the world's ever known. You're like, oh, okay. (laughs) But, you know, it turned out I really liked that. And Greek was much harder for me anyway. I think generally people find it harder. The literature was even more, you know, beguiling. And I was so overwhelmed, really, by, by Greek tragedy in particular. I felt like when I made my kind of studying choices, generally I discounted things rather than actively choosing things. I kind of went, do I want to do more of this? Not really. Do I want to do more of this? Not really. As a teenager, I was quite, dismissive of things I wasn't really passionate about now I'm much more um, kind of intellectually tolerant and more probably more intellectually curious, I think. But then I was like, I'm interested in ancient history, but I don't care at all about modern history. I'm interested in, you know, in Latin, but I don't care at all about French. And now I'm like, oh, I'm interested in how Racine retells Greek myth. But in those days I was much less on top of it. So, yes.
1: Yeah, I think it's very normal. I definitely would describe myself, a young version of me, as the all or nothing. Very much, I like this, and I like it a lot, so I'm going to do it. If I didn't yeah. like it immediately, it would just nothing nope, at all. Yeah, goodbye. This, I'm not going to interact with this. And it was a shame because there were some things I definitely that my I think my parents really wanted to introduce me to, and because it didn't grab me right away toss it out and said nope I'm never gonna like this and so yeah I've gotten some of better things. as
4: I've got older at doing things that I know I'm not good at because it doesn't matter that I'm not good at them if you see what I mean I was very quick to go okay well I can do this so this is a thing I should pursue I can't do that so that's of no interest to me and and you know like art visual arts I I'm not I'm not I'm not skilled at them I'm quite I can be creative in some ways but not in others so it's like I'm bad at art so art's not for me and then of course I, I ended up going into reviewing art for the BBC of all places. And it's like, art was always for me. I just didn't realize it because I couldn't kind of create it myself. And now I think if I were freer of time, I would have no problem with, with trying to create art, no matter how bad it is. I go to kickboxing every week and I'm not good at it. I'm too tall, really, to be a kickboxer. I'm not flexible enough. I'm too old, frankly, relative to the other people in my class. And none of that really matters because I really like being there. And they at least make me feel like they like having me there, which is the important thing. And it's like, oh, yeah, you don't have to be good at something to enjoy it. And I wish I had learned that. I have very, very few regrets, but I wish I had learned that when I was younger because I think probably there were bits of my um, life that I could have had more fun with if I hadn't been so relentlessly pursuing the things I was good at. Although relentless pursuit has, has served me pretty well. So. Yeah.
1: I, I think I sympathize with that because it was do my piano, which I hated because I'm just so unmusically talented, which is a real tragedy because I would love to play the piano. But instead, I was like, no, I'm going to go upstairs. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to read my Homer.
4: Goodbye, piano. So that sort yeah, of worked out well. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I choose Homer over virtually everything. But in retrospect, I think maybe you could have had Homer and piano and that would have been okay. I think I was, I was like exactly like that. I was so monomaniacal. It's like, I'm so into classics. I'm just going to study classics. That, and that was good because I now know loads about classics. It served me really well. But in a way, it's a shame because we could have all done piano as well. That's we owe so the piano of the world a collective apology. I'm
1: sorry, piano. Yeah. I, I keep promising myself that one day I will get back to it. I'm going to just sit down at the piano. It's ridiculous. I haven't done anything. I mean, I have a piano right downstairs. I'm like, I could just sit down and start playing find maybe some sort of person private tutor or something and I just don't because I'm like I can't be bothered I'll do it later
4: maybe it's not time yet that's okay
1: yeah luckily I've got a lot of time uh going forward in my life so
4: yay rewinding
1: just a a little bit back young Natalie at 14 doing Greek and you've now done Latin for a while was yeah. it actively encouraged for you to keep going and pursue this? Or was there anyone who was like, no, 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 no. you You want to get paid. You want a real people job. You should No, not do-
4: My school was great. They were really, really keen on, on, you know, having lots of classicists. They still are keen on having lots of classicists. I still go back and talk to the students there, like once every cohort, every whatever it is, seven years that they go through, I go back and give out some prizes and go, Classics is terrific. Very well done, all of you. And then, you know, leave again. I think my mom and dad were probably a bit, you know, like, really? When I took triple classics A-levels, because that's really young to specialize at 16. And my mom says she really remembers someone saying to her, well, what's she going to do with that? And she said, whatever she wants, I imagine. I was an extremely alarming teenager. You know how easygoing and nice I am now? I wasn't like that. (laughs) I really grew into that. I was incredibly impatient, incredibly impatient. And really kind of, you know, scratchy the way that kids can sometimes be yeah I I constantly felt like you were probably getting at me um and you probably weren't you know but very very few people ever questioned my decisions because it was such an alarming prospect you know I was quick-witted then although I wasn't a comedian yet but you know I had a mean streak when I was young so yeah people generally stood well back <laughs> and me do it and now I feel kind of bad because I'm you know generally not very scary these days but I was a scary young person so Yeah, no, no one ever questioned me. They would not have dared, is a completely (laughs) valid answer. That's fantastic. And
1: it's perfect because I feel like so many of the young females in Greek mythology and even the texts are kind of like that as well. I mean, I think the first time that I really interacted with Helen of Troy, I said, you know what? Good for her. She was impatient. She was like, I I don't care. I'm just going to. Do what I want to do maybe start a war that's fine yeah she to do I mean what she the version
4: do. of her in Ovid and the heroides is absolutely incredible you know there's that those last sets of letters the peasant letters so you get the letter from Paris going basically here's my CV and this is why you should run off with me and then you get a letter back from her pretty well saying I mean the thing is babe it would be a bit of a fall in status so uh, you're cute and all but uh, it's just oh okay yep all right, yeah
1: so it It's not a shock to me when people are like, yeah, I was totally wrapped up in myself and I was impatient I like to do what I like to do. Oh, and I liked Greek mythology. And I go, oh, that's great. So you sound like every young Greek lady ever. Okay, fantastic.
4: I mean, myth is a real gateway drug, isn't it? That's the thing. Whether it's, you know, Greek mythology, I think particularly, but Norse myth and, you know, Egyptian and I think, you know, little kids are often real, and actually, to be fair, the sort of mythologized version of Pompeii similarly has that kind of quality. And it's a, it's a real lure. You know, you get us when we're young and we're like, you were classicists for life, really. I
1: found there are two ways it can go. It can go, either you get hooked on the Greco-Roman mythology right away and you're like, that's my thing. I'm good. Or yeah. it's Egyptian, because I actually was hooked by Egyptian really young i was sixth grade i think so i was 11 at the point at that point right right and so
4: that set me i on had my, to come I to norse as an noticed. adult i've been really, really? I, yeah i didn't really get it when i was young i was like you know here's the thing the greeks are like archetypes that sort of reveal our innermost desires to ourselves and you've got what, a big snake in a tree and it took me a really long time to to come around to the idea that there was this whole different way of looking at myth um, and that, you know, maybe it, it might be worth, you know, considering both, having room for both in my life.
1: Well, it's interesting because I've found now as an adult, all myth looking back, It's all bonkers, but for whatever reason, there was something about Greco-Roman myths where I was able to more easily rationalize kind of what I was taking in, what I was reading, and I could always find a reason. I mean, it's not like there's less sort of magic qualities to it, but for whatever reason, some of the more bonkers types of myth like Norse and even Egyptian is like insane. For whatever reason, I just couldn't wrap my young mind around why that seemed more fantastical and so more complicated in a way than Greco-Roman myths? Did did that just happen to me or is that? I vaguely
4: feel like the reason that the Greeks get us is because even though it's a myth cycle that's full of monsters and gods, it operates in a very human way and on a very human scale. So, you know, the gods, at least if we read them as presented to us by Euripides, for example, or Homer, are, are very human. They're quite petulant. They're childish, you know, but they are very human and so they they still feel it still feels like we're somehow existing in that kind of Protagorean notion I guess of, of man being the measure of all things and it's like oh yeah okay this is it then this is where this is you know this is a an attempt to put a framework numinous for want of a better word that's essentially quite human in scale and that's you know for all the the monsters or you know Scylla or Charybdis or whoever it still feels like those stories are ones that we come at from a very human mindset you know it's, it's Odysseus that we follow through the difficult path between scylla and Charybdis it's Circe who gives him advice on how to you know travel through and the reason that she does it is because they've had a sexual relationship and there's you know residual affection between them even though he's leaving and so it does feel on a on a more human scale so I think that's it but
1: yeah I don't know I Maybe I thought it was just me growing up. I don't
4: know. I should ask more
1: people about how they felt about all these mythologies and if they felt some were more bonkers than others. It'd be an interesting Yeah, it would mention. be interesting.
4: Yeah, it would be really interesting to know what what people are drawn to, whether they're drawn to it's otherness and how bonkers it is or whether they're drawn to finding themselves in it.
1: Yeah, because I, I too as an adult have come more into the Norse myth and now that I'm learning more, I'm like, oh, this is actually really interesting and I see mm. so many parallels. Why didn't I like this when I was younger? guess I missed the boat on that one oops okay so no one could convince you that you shouldn't take this classics path when did the realization dawn on you or did it academia is a very difficult thing to get into and so maybe being a professor at a university was going to be really hard to
4: I mean being a professor at a university would have been a lot easier than being a stand-up comedian which is what I became instead Um, at the time I was doing it in the mid late 1990s women were about 10 percent of Uh, stand-up comics in this country so it was an intensely gendered world and it was a really difficult one you know comedy in the 90s was not easy place to be a young woman to put it mildly and extremely euphemistically so yeah I mean I'm I have absolutely no regrets I couldn't have afforded to stay at university and study for longer and I really really wanted to be a comedian it wasn't a difficult choice for me I think you know in in some ways my life would probably have been easier if I'd stayed academia and taught I like teaching but The version, the route that I took means that I get to um, heavy inverted commas, teach, you know, a million people at a time with a radio program, and I don't have to do any of the paperwork, which is what crushes most people in academia in the end, I think. So I would have been really, really bad at coping with um, any of the changes in universities that have happened in the UK over the last 10 or, or 15, 20 years, where it's become... Um, intensely monetized, and management theory has become the sort of order of the day. And and how passionate or important your scholarship is, doesn't matter as much as how many you know units it brings in. I see an awful lot of friends in academia having a hellish time, and I'm you know relieved that I'm not among them. In some ways, I feel sort of sorry that I didn't get the opportunity to do that, but I thought then that academia wasn't for me because I was too too poor basically to be able to fit into that. Uh, mold and now I think I'm too individual to be able to fit into that mold so yeah I don't feel particularly regretful I love being a stand-up I don't think I could have done them both at the same time because they both require too much pursuit and stand-up is really all-encompassing so yeah no I don't it'd be nice to do a visiting professorship somewhere or something to sort of you know dip one foot into it that'd be lovely but that's about as much as I could do I think I just don't know almost anyone who teaches in academia who's having a nice time pretty well And that's a sad uh, state of our... It's quite the indictment, isn't it? Now I've said it out loud. I feel really, yeah, that sounds really bleak, but we almost no exceptions. Everyone I know is just really struggling. And of course, they've had a horrendous year or so having to teach remotely. um, So not getting to sort of be with their students and see them in real life and, and having to do extra work and all of that stuff. So perhaps that's just making them more negative and therefore making me more negative about the progression. But yeah, it doesn't look like a desirable place to be at the moment anyway.
1: No, I mean, I would say that's pretty much in line with everything that's been going on here, everything that we hear about. I know that there was recent outrage over Howard University's announcement that they want to dissolve their classics department. Right entirely, which is just such a tragedy. I mean, it's the only HBCU in the country to ever have a classics department and now they want to take it away. So that's just kind of the state of our entire education system as it's set up, which is so depressing. Yeah. It feels like this year, especially, you can't go a week without hearing something really depressing about either academia or education, and especially the humanities. It, it's hard not to get a little depressed about it. And
4: it really yeah, is. Yeah, I agree.
1: Like funding is something that I harp on a lot. We're all really familiar with the funding issues, but I think a lot of people outside our spheres. I don't think they understand quite how bad it is for us. I mean, you can talk about how education in general is not in a good place. And so all these STEM programs and other programs also are needing help. And that's completely valid. But like we're a specific subset of a subset that's very much in danger. tend to get lost a lot, I feel like. Okay, so let's let's take it somewhere a little happier. Stand-up comedy. Yes. So... Being a comedian, I think that's something that a lot of people dream of when they're young. A lot of people are like, "Oh, that sounds like it would be really fun. I'd like to make people laugh." Going into that without sort of like a background in theater or some or something that people seem to associate with going into entertainment, going at it from the classics background, how mm-hmm. was that experience? Because I think a lot of people wouldn't
4: associate classics. How can you what make that funny? Turn it into yeah, I didn't. Um, I didn't for a really long time. So I was on the circuit very much not as a classicist just as a comic talking about me and the world I lived in and I I remember I think it was my 30th birthday or 29th something like that having a party in the local pub and friends from university came because they were in London and some of my stand-up friends came Um, so it must have been late huh because they would have had to have finished work and one of them suddenly shouted across the room Haynes you did what at university and I'm like what and they had just, we'd known each other for literally five years or something, and they had no idea that, you know, I could at any moment be reading Homer and, and you know, that that would seem like a reasonable thing to me to do. So it, they were just totally separate to me for, for the longest time. You know, when I was an undergraduate, which is when I started doing comedy, I didn't do comedy about classics. And that only became more pronounced after I graduated. And then really it was just because I wrote a book called The Ancient Guide to Modern Life way back in 2010, I think it was published. And I knew I would have to go and do events to sort of try and sell the book. And I was I was I pretty well quit stand up or was in the process of quitting stand up at that point. I kind of thought, oh, you know, I'm going to have to do sort of these events. And people say, oh, can you come and do a talk? Can you come and give a lecture? And it's like, yeah, yeah, sure. But the answer is no, of course I can't. What I can do is tell you jokes and you know or stories about this that have jokes in or whatever. It's a real effort to me to do, do something straight. I find it really oppressive. I have to really remind myself, even when I'm writing, it's like it's okay if it doesn't all have laughs. And oh yeah, that's right, it's not supposed to be a comedy. No, that's okay. But my instinct in front of an audience is always to go for a cheap joke. I can never resist. it. As a friend of mine says, I would do that gag at a funeral, and it's like, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. So they were just completely separate for the longest time, and then because I I needed or wanted extra income, I wrote for the newspapers and I wrote for the Time, the London Times, and uh, I did a piece about emperors and their modern sort of iterations. And that turned into the book Ancient Guide and the the sort of tour show for that kind of developed into stand-up because what else was it ever going to given that I was me, I suppose. And then the radio series came off that and so on and so on. So it it seems, it looks like I had a phenomenal strategy which I ruthlessly pursued from the get-go and that's simply not true. I basically just tripped over things into where I am now, you know, over and over again. So whenever I go and talk in schools and people say, you know, how do we, Uh, what kind of career path it's like just don't do what I did because none of it is replicable so yeah
1: okay so then I okay it's not a given but I would say most people who love studying the ancient world love or are good at writing in some way about you know expressing their feelings about interacting with this material but a lot of people are like I'm not bold enough to try to be an author try to be a writer and turn my own thoughts and ramblings into something for other people to digest so when did you kind of get into writing and say I'd like to write but not just for me
4: here's the thing I dispute your premise ungenerously but I do I think most people in academia classicists know more or less than anyone else are terrible at writing sorry I know this is really mean but most of them are writing in academic language for an academic readership with this constant notion of the hostile reader Which you need as an academic because it's going to get picked apart by peer review um, or you know by an anonymous reader, and and academics have to be constantly kind of shielding themselves from all of those things. So I completely get how the writing ends up bad, but it's not good. You know, it's not. There's a sense often I think that that the more unclear your argument is, the more you know um, hedged in with caveats and and concerns that that somehow the more academic it is but actually makes it virtually unreadable to anyone outside of of the most limited academic readership and there is a there's a desire to pursue that uh, to its nth degree in which when you know academics write non-academic books books for a general readership they're referred to as like a trade book and you kind of think well you know when you say trade that sort of sounds a little bit condescending to go into trade as a supposed to have what inherited your money I don't think there's anything wrong with appealing to a large audience and I certainly don't think there's anything wrong with opening classics up to a large audience so I would much rather academic writing that the people made more of an attempt with it to make it more accessible to more readers because there are plenty of people who are perfectly astute and clever readers um, who would never pick up a academic text not because they wouldn't understand it but because it just isn't very well written and it's just going to bore and annoy them and that's a huge shame. I guess I came at it the other way because I had left university as a as a graduate, but only as a a, a regular graduate, a bachelor's of the arts graduate. Um, they give you a master's after a couple of years at Cambridge. Um, you, you don't have to do anything for it, which is obviously shaming. Yeah, so you can claim it, but you, you didn't really deserve it, I suppose. I'm really glad that my writing as a stand-up um, was the first kind of communication writing, I suppose I did, because there is pretty well nobody who thinks about the weight of words more than comedians except maybe poets and advertisers unless you're paying by the word you need the weight of a word the way poets do you just don't you know stand-ups are always thinking about the rhythm of sentences and things like that which we would see as you know as classicists as being a very you know compositional way of writing you know oral composition all of those things plus stand-ups do that all the time you know you have to because otherwise you'll screw up the punchline so i guess i'd i'd come up at writing sort of a really unusual way around which is that I'd got the techniques of mass communication from doing stand-up but my interests were quite abstruse and so far as they were classics but then my um kind of segue job was writing for broadsheet newspapers which again is a very good way of communicating ideas a largish but but fairly literate cultured readership which isn't to say that I didn't write for you know tabloids occasionally because I did or for you know magazines and and much less kind of highbrow readership because I did that too but it's, it, it's a huge learning opportunity I hear academics being snobby and they are about popular academics academics who go on tv academics who do the radio academics who write for newspapers then my heart aches a little because it's like well how how high do you need the walls around your walled garden to be really you know I feel like I spend a huge amount of my life trying to open the doors of, of the classics world to more and more people to a broader audience and it's like disappointing when it feels like you're doing that while somebody is trying to build the walls ever higher and those people shouldn't it's like well how how protected does this material need to be and from whom i i can't see it in those terms you know it's like well we shouldn't let these people study greek if they greek literature if they haven't got greek language well not everyone can study greek language at school mate so maybe stop being so precious about it and teach them freaking greek how about that I would like more academics to write in a more accessible way, but it didn't ever occur to me that I wouldn't want to communicate, wouldn't want to write to a big audience. Because as a stand-up, you know, you gig a few times to like three. Uh, I promise you, a small audience is is both more intimidating and less fun than a big audience. If I had to gig again to three people or 3,000 people, and I've done both, I'd pick 3,000 every time. It's much easier.
1: Yeah, okay. So i I guess you make some very good points. So I guess I can rephrase. We think academics are really good at writing just because we see them publishing a requirement. I mean, you have to get published I mean, there's this, this idea that you have to get published and you have yeah. to produce a lot of content if you're going to be visible or successful, quote unquote. Whatever Yeah, that you means. have to
4: produce a lot of words, but that's not the same as good words, is it?
1: <laughs> right, exactly. Ah, awkward. So I think that lends to the stereotype that, well, if they're producing a lot of written content on a yearly basis, then AKA they must be halfway good writers if they're getting published, which, okay, that's not true. So I would say, is it more accurate than shall we call them? They're almost clinical writers in terms of they're trained and they have to write in a very specific way if they want to be in academia, because you're not training them to reach people. You're training them to literally be able to publish in this very small box.
4: Yeah, I think that's probably closer. Clinical implies a degree of precision, which I think is probably right for the most part. But there's a sort of element of of kind of clean clarity to... The idea of it as well, which I think is often missing entirely from academic writing to sorry, I'm being horrible about academic writers. Some of them are amazing. Some of them are completely brilliant. And the best academic writers are as good as any writers lot. But there are an awful lot of people producing an awful lot of material which furthers their particular area of study, but which does nothing to open it to anyone else. And that seems to me to be in lots of ways missing at least part of the point of of what any kind of, of study and education should be about. It's like, you know, by all means go further down your own path but if there's there's always a slight sense for me with classics in particular but it's maybe just because that's the field i know best that people want to go down their own path, but they they genuinely don't want anyone else to come with them because that's competition and that's going to be stressful and difficult. And it's like, okay, that's not what I understand by education. And of course, that's easy for me to say because I'm not relying on getting grants that somebody else could get if they were working in the same field. I don't have to prove there's a you know a, an originality or a uniqueness to what I'm doing in order to get paid. So I can see the, the pressure is there to not be collaborative. But it seems to me against everything that I believe about about studying gritty really is it, it it kind of it doesn't break my heart but it dents it a little
1: yeah i i think definitely on the same wavelength there i i see gatekeeping in classics as one of the most horrid and annoying things because we set up all these artificial barriers so yeah. it makes it really hard for anyone who wants to get in the field and for people who are outside of it and don't necessarily want to be in it okay no that's that's hard Ooh, i don't want to read that so i think it's really good to approach it from a different mindset but that also leads me then to ask do you think it might be beneficial if more classics majors double majored in
4: journalism or something that would teach don't go into journalism because there's no money in a and you know all the newspapers are closing down and this is terrible for our democracy it's terrible for our social engagement but i i can't cope with questions on that scale so just on a more personal scale i don't want people to commit half their degree to something which isn't going to pay their rent I'm I'm really keen on the basics here. And that is that, I, you know, I, I have always argued that if you're going to go into writing, you need something else which sort of sets you aside. But I think you you make a really strong point that actually for classicists, it would be good to have another thing with it. You know, for me, I, I applied to read classics, but within a term of starting my degree, I was doing stand up. So those two things have always existed together for me. And I do see that's an unusual combination. Yeah, I think you're right. but. Th- it would be good if it would be good if finding ways to communicate were seen as a priority by classicists because it seems to me the absolute height of insanity to be worrying about being seen as irrelevant, to be worrying about losing funding to be worrying about losing departments while it seems looking more and more inwards as as we do that. It's like we're so frightened that the you know barbarians are at the gates of Rome that we're standing behind the gates facing each other, and it's like how is that going to help? You know we're like children hiding under a bed. It cannot work, we have to go outwards, but it doesn't always feel like academics are ready or able or confident about doing that so there are lots of academics who are you know and powerful forces for good so I, I think in the end I hope will we'll prevail those of us who believe that classics belongs to you yeah, know anybody who wants to study it rather than people who've you know passed the secret exam and jumped through the right hoop I'm not here for it I'm afraid so I hope I hope that they lose but then I've no doubt they hope I get hit by traffic so it's fine <laughs> like, might as well we'll get used to it <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, them, I'm terrible at crossing the road. So, in fact, I get hit by cars quite often. <laughs> oh, no. No, it's fine. So, it was only a glancing flow. So, do we need to put you in like a
1: hamster ball when you cross the street? Is that this- is
4: exactly what I need. And I'm tall as well. So, it's going to be a big old hamster ball. But yeah, that's what we're going to have to do. Yeah.
1: Or we can put you in bubble wrap or something. Just-
4: yeah. I, all these are good ideas. The last time someone reversed into me, that really wasn't my fault. It's legitimate to expect me to be looking at cars that are driving towards me, but somebody just putting it into reverse and then backing into that's just mean.
1: Oh, gosh. Ugh. I would hope that someone driving a car would actually look behind them. To be I mean, sure. we would I'm all hope sort of that. Run into <laughs> you. <laughs> but, you know, my faith in humanity right now we all is... Hope. Um...
4: <laughs> he was really sorry for what it's worth. He was properly apologetic. but yeah. Oh,
1: okay. That's good. Yeah. Before or after he f- figured out that you were there, like, hi, I'm about uh, uh, to... You know. Just shortly after. <laughs> shortly after okay yeah okay that's good at least he was at least he was properly shamed and apologetic that's, yes exactly. that's all we ask
4: he had what i believe we describe as a learning moment so yeah.
1: <laughs> next time it's okay it's okay next time just look before you back up please there we go yes yeah so i think classics is a i like to refer to it as sort of a shape-shifting type of major maybe uh, more accurate assessment would be a charmeleon or something because it, it does so well when it blends into something else but of course then that makes us kind of invisible and makes yes. the discipline yeah, yeah. really invisible but it's interesting so what you just have sort of been saying which is you do need something on the side something else that can hopefully keep you afloat as you're trying to maybe do something in classics uh the best piece of advice I think I've heard in a long time was last year and someone said don't kill yourself over this thing that you love because it's not gonna step out here and defend you unfortunately
4: definitely true although I'm the worst person to even begin to offer that advice because I will properly go to the wall for a a book or you know a program or something and it's true that it will never love you back so it's a terrible investment of your heart but I, I don't know any other way to make things yeah I always fall for the things that I'm making it's never good enough it always you know comes close to destroying me on the way there sometimes really close to destroying me on the way there so far I've always managed to pull it back from the edge and yet I'm just about to do it again I can feel it with a new book I'm I'm just I've I've just turned the corner and I'm about to go into the bit where it throws you know rocks at me for three months and I'm like okay I'm ready
1: so sometimes it's worth it sometimes it can really I think it's always
4: worth it I'm a terrible I'm a terrible don't be me is what I'm saying I'm a terrible example I think it's always worth it but it can be very hard to live with it can be very hard for you to live with the work and it can be very hard for other people to live with you living with the work so yes it's yes don't be me is what I'm saying listen to that (laughs) other person's advice it's never gonna love you back
1: yeah I you know and and it's interesting because it's It's so hard though, when you get to this realization that this thing that you're trying to do, it's insane to me, the amount of stress people will, like the positions they will put themselves into to just be able to do something, anything that even relates to this degree that we've been working so hard to earn, but you're miserable. From your example, at least, it doesn't matter whether you're going into academia and, and trying to write for for other academics. And it doesn't matter if you're going to be an actual author writing for everyone
4: else. Regular human people.
1: (laughs) Regular human people who don't just take a pickaxe to every sentence you write and go, oh, is that right?
4: Yeah, it's a thought, isn't it? Imagine writing for those people. Imagine writing for the people who go, I love this book. Instead of the people who go, what I think you might want to do here is, yeah, no, i am going to write for those people. They're delightful.
1: (laughs) Can't imagine that. Wow. Oh, writing for other people it's who a might thought. actually just saying. say just love I it. like this yeah. like I like what you're doing I like the characters I like how you've yeah. written
4: it the nicest thing is as well you get I get it a lot even now is people get in touch and they say I'm really sorry but I had to tell you that I love your book and you go right I'm gonna have to take you back to the start of that sentence why are you sorry? <laughs> yeah, I'm delighted. Yeah, I made a thing that you love. That was my goal. This was exactly what I was aiming to do, was to create a piece of work that you've had that emotional response to. Don't be sorry. You have to be sorry if you're going to come over and say, I hated your book. <laughs> Otherwise, no apology required.
1: Okay, so, you know, we, we kill ourselves trying to do this thing that won't love us back, but you found th- a way, not maybe not the way, but a way to both interact and be able to do the thing you love. But also, you've been able to carve out a little niche for yourself and still make it fun. Because a lot of people at this point, I see a lot of grad students who are just struggling to find something. They don't even love what they're doing anymore. So they don't find classics fun right. because of the stress of doing everything. I'm sure it was plenty stressful for you. But in turning a little toward being able to do your own thing and not struggling through the quote unquote typical grad student path, you know, is it liberating to be able to say, OK, well, if I'm not going to be hamstrung by this, I'm going to find my own way to make it fun and do my own thing. And then yes. hopefully other people will find it fun, too. But like, yes, it's as fun as that amazing. was, how was that process? Like, was it hard in discovering, you know, oh, if I'm not going to be bound by the regular writing rules of blah, 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 blah
4: no because there are always different rules you know stand-up has rules and journalism has rules and i guess what happens is that gradually you learn the rules and then you can break the rules and you have to get a long way through academia before you can do that because it's so status conscious so you have to be incredibly successful to be able to break the rules in academia whereas actually you only have to be mildly successful as a comedian you've just got to be funny and then you can break the rules you only have to be a bit successful writing for a newspaper to break rules because so long as people read it, that's really all that matters. It doesn't matter if they agree with you. In fact, there are plenty of, of funding models which are predicated on them not agreeing with you. Although uh, the days of kind of writing for clicks are after I sort of finished for the most part writing for newspapers. Uh, I do it a little bit now, but not very much. So there are always rules that you have to kind of meet in a way, but you can always break them. The question is, is do you know how to? I kind of embrace the idea that you can learn the rules and break the rules not knowing not bothering to learn them isn't good enough but learning how they exist and why they exist and aristotle is is the business on this gives you the opportunity to go okay i get the rule but i can get the same effect if i do this thing which breaks that rule and that's going to be really cool so that's quite a satisfying but you have to do a lot of work to get to that point where you can kind of knowledgeably discard rules so i guess it was that but i think maybe one of the things that i'm luckiest with is that however stressed i am i very rarely stop finding it fun even when i'm properly falling apart i'll still there there are still moments where i'm i'm just enchanted by it you know by the process by the i don't like admin and so i've basically just farmed that out the As I've become more successful, you get more admin. That's the bit that they don't tell you. But you can also afford to pay somebody to do some of it, which is great because I hate it and I'm too busy, brutally. And it's a bad use of of my time. That's the bit that I feel the least sorry about losing as it's gone along, I think. I guess, I'm, I guess I question the notion that being stressed about it has to, has to destroy your enjoyment in it. But I see that I'm quite an unusual mindset where this is concerned because maybe the stand-up in me, I like it. I like being stressed. I know you're not supposed to. And you know I know it's supposed to be bad for you and all that cortisol's going to kill me and all of that. I get it, but I like it. I don't know what you want me to say. I love the feeling like a minute before you walk on stage where everything's going to happen and it's all in your control. I love having that sense of responsibility to a room full of people i love the moment where you take control of a, of a space like that and so yeah even when it even when it has been really stressful i've always enjoyed it and the bits that i haven't enjoyed are the bits that i would have had far proportionately far more of in any other walk of life namely emails diary management things like that
1: yeah i mean i think that's the goal i mean we would we would love in a perfect world for everyone to be able to love and enjoy what they're doing and never get to the point where they're like I hate what I'm doing, or I hate this. It's so stressful.
4: Yeah. I mean, I consistently have walked away from things that are too stressful and don't provide me with enough delight. And, you know, partly that you have to have a degree of financial success before you can afford to do that. That's one of the perks of, of achieving something is that it means you can walk away. At every stage in my life, I've been conscious of the bit that I like the least. Um, it's like, I, I least enjoy this thing. I least enjoy doing this thing, but I have to do it for the money. And then when I haven't had to do it for the money, I have immediately jettisoned it. I never, ever go back. I don't think. I never look back and I never go back. I'm like, thank God that's gone. (laughs) Um, And I don't ever regret doing it because usually I needed the money to pay the mortgage. And, you know, that's not nothing. Simply not here for a kind of starry-eyed worldview, which says, you know, I can just create things and it'll all be delightful. No, I've got bills to pay, same as everyone else. So, yeah, I have ever done jobs I didn't want to because they paid. And sometimes because they paid really badly as well. They didn't even pay well, but I still needed the money. But at every stage that I didn't have to, I stopped.
1: Yeah, that's completely reasonable. So maybe to a more, the the more fun part of what you get to do that you do enjoy, not the bill paying and other things that we all hate doing, but they must get done. Somehow they must. Somehow they must. I just need a genie. Just snap my fingers. Yeah, I
4: have I have a genie called Pauline and she just deals with all the things that I can't bear. And before Pauline, I, I was quite efficient once and then I just got too busy brutally and more and more emails came in and more and more things happened. And I realised about two years ago that if it weren't for Pauline, I would basically just live at a railway station staring into space wondering where I lived because I, I would have forgotten where I was going and how I was going to get home. and so Pauline just magically makes everything all right and it's like d- and every time I'm you know doing that I can see people's kind of there's like a a kind of wordless hunger in their eyes for the glory that is Pauline and you go you can't have her she's busy <laughs> no you meant but it is like having a genie you kind of go oh I wish everything would be all right and somebody would have organized this and tell me where to go and everything and she makes it happen and I'm, I try really hard but not to be infantilizing because generally I'm quite a responsible person who you know will buy their own train tickets and buy them for the right day and all of those things but man it's tempting sometimes you just think oh maybe I'll just sit here and Pauline will tell me what to do it's like no you can't be that person a it's really annoying you just you're sort of lead weight on somebody but yeah it, it's it's I come close sometimes I'm not gonna lie oh I think so many people wish they could. I was in my 40s before there was Pauline in my life, just so you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got some time. Got
1: some time to get there. All right. So all hope is not lost. Maybe I will get myself a a genie who's Paulinesque. Okay. So now that you have time to focus on all the stuff that you really like to do, and presumably you love doing it. Okay. Maybe not certain parts. Because you have this background in classics, you absolutely know what I think most classes will talk about when they say it. it inspires everything in our culture in pop culture in media in f- all the stuff i know you got these wonderful books out there and so you are a creator you are creating your own media essentially but in terms of other ways to make things accessible let's just stick with let it accessible and easy for other people to consume the information without like confusing them and making it you know 10 steps so okay i don't this is too confusing so i don't get that so i don't want to deal with that when i read ships for example. It just struck me as not only was it something I could read that it just was written in a really open, easy way that I could enjoy, but it was also written in a way where I like was able to pick up and understand who these people were, even if I had no background in Greek mythology. If I had no idea who any of these people were, that wouldn't be a problem because I'd be like, oh, that's fine. I get it, whatever. Why are we not doing that more? Because I hear way too many people saying, I like Greek mythology. (laughs) But yeah, I don't I know. I can't why other people aren't remember all the gods, and I can't remember
4: what they do. You know, people can't even pronounce half the names. Yeah, the pronunciation thing is a really big deal for a lot of people, and especially when you get interviewed, people are really apologetic, and they're like, oh, "I'm going to say this wrong." And it's like, I say it wrong. Don't worry, you know. And the, the the you know, when I come and gig in the states, people say, "Oh, you know, we say Oedipus wrong," and it's like, Oedipus is wrong which is what I would say, we're both wrong because the Greek is Oedipus, don't worry about it. And it's like, oh, wait, you mean, you know, this isn't a rule. It's like it it literally isn't. You don't look stupid if you don't know how to say it. But there's that sense, I think, that we're made to feel like that, like classics is, again, behind these high walls. And that therefore, you know, if you don't know the secret knock, if you can't say the name properly, that you're somehow getting it wrong and it's not allowed.
1: OK, I've had this one question stewing for the longest time, and I really wanted to ask it last time we spoke, but I didn't have time. If you could see any of your books adapted into a film or TV show, which would it be and why?
4: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't know what the answer is. I think the most likely to be adapted is Ships, but actually it should be Amber. The Amber Fury as it was published in the UK, the Furies as it was published in the US, which I'm pretty sure is out of print in the US now. Um, but it's written in five acts, so it, in theory it would be the, the easiest to, to translate into a dramatic form. And The Children of Jocasta has has a, you know, it's my version of, of a tragedy, so it has quite a small set and a relatively small cast, so again it would be the easier one to do. And then there's Ships, which is my epic, that sort of sprawls everywhere and all over the place, and you think, oh my god, that would cost a fortune, that's by far the most likely to be adapted because it's the most successful book. So kind of imagine the uh, sort of dream cast when you write them in some ways but they're not always for me anyway they're not always like real and possible so the person who is who Medusa looks like in the in my next novel she is a person that I saw on someone's like social media timeline and I was like that's what she looks like that's what she looks like and I screen grabbed it and so to me that's who she is that's what she looks like but she's not an actor so you know she so there's that sort of thing where people say you know who's your dream cast for this and you kind of think well people who don't sometimes who, who they look like and who they are aren't the same yeah it's it's a tricky one but i hope i hope it'll be ships of course because you know it's such a a big story and it has so many women in it and there are women are still vastly underrepresented and you know big dramas and films and things so that'd be the nicest one i guess
1: yes i would love to see ships adapted the problem that i see is well that I hate is it's impossible to do anything justice within a two two and a half hour time block which is why I always want to say please make more multi-part multi-season series right. because then you can really have time for the material
4: I mean and it's then- easier now I think, than it's been isn't it because there's more sense that you can spend money on a, a mini-series or a full-length series that that and that just didn't used to be true even you know 10 or 15 years ago it's like films had big budgets and telly had small budgets but that has changed i think
1: yes especially with the with the rise of netflix i've been yes. noticing when i sometimes happen to be googling on the internet and then i see something that says netflix spends 90 million dollars on x tv show and i go oh well that's new that's larger than a lot of film budgets i i yeah. have any point so i'm like oh okay so we're in this new world of hey we can do this and we can do our material justice and so with your last answer, it got me thinking, who were your favorite women to write for in ships? And if you could cast them, who would they be?
4: Oh, that's a really good question because often they are not the age that we think of them as being, if you see what I mean. So Cassandra is probably, you know, my stealthy favorite in the of the Trojans, certainly she is. But, you know, she would be 15, 16, maybe at most 17. So it would be really, really hard to find, you know, whoever would play her, she's currently a child (laughs) I don't know I don't know who should play her so that one is is really difficult I think you know you kind of look back and think well if you'd caught any one of a number of young actors at that point in their career but even then it's really difficult I mean I guess Penelope must be sort of around 40 something like that so she's probably uh, an easier role to cast and she was tremendous fun to write I'm not gonna lie she really was a lot of fun to do yeah I'd want somebody who could make who could keep the funny because she is kind of snarky and you know she was played brilliantly by a woman called Anton Antoniadis in Cyprus. We did the a production of The thousand ships there in a theatre and so she's been voiced by a few people because uh, they did a chapter each. Penelope has been done by a few very brilliant Cypriot women and it's, it's sort of hard to take it away from them. You know that that last to the Penelope letters which is sort of really broken-hearted and and a bit ptsd after everything she's sort of belatedly been through you know i saw that delivered just really well <laughs> in greek and i don't speak modern greek so hearing hearing it hearing words that you've written in a language you don't understand that's at the same time really close to a language you do understand but only to read <laughs> it's like it was a you know it was a lot of emotions to experience at the same time so yeah i'm not sure who should play them but we'll see i suppose and
1: as an author, so since you aren't writing for it to be consumed visually in uh, the way a, a film or TV show would be, what is the experience like of seeing other people take your work, adapt it, but do something that you just weren't expecting with it, you know? If, it's if really you've written, magical. Yeah, it's, so really, it's really, really you've written magical. a scene and it's like you want them to be crying or sad and then this person just takes it and and decides I'm going to yell the scene that's exactly
4: what happens Penelope is way crosser in Greek than she is in English I think you're like oh man she's really oh okay yeah no fine um and so I yeah I do her when I I read the audiobook of ships and she's much more kind of world weary when I do her and then in Greek yeah she's a lot angrier and you're like oh yeah no great and it's There's that kind of wonderful thing. I know some writers are very possessive about it and it's like the way they hear it or feel it or see it is the only way that that seems acceptable to them. And I generally haven't felt that way, you know, when people draw or create, you know, other versions of scenes in Ships, you know, sometimes people send pictures that they've drawn that were inspired by it or, or yes, perform it. I'm always kind of delighted, to be honest. There's a, a set of compositions called They Have Waited Long Enough, which obviously is something Calliope says in Ships which uh, was being performed in Belgium a couple of weekends ago. And it goes Holland, the Netherlands in July, and then Italy in September, I think. And, and, so the, and those are you know, musical compositions based on two of the chapters in Ships, I think. And that's kind of fantastic. You know, it's like my brain just would never allow me to make this piece of art so having somebody else make it having them be inspired by something that you did it's really really cool yeah I guess I can understand because lots of writers get really badly burned by bad adaptations or you know crass reworkings and things so I understand why people are territorial about it but I've been very lucky so far touch wood that the people who've produced work based on my work have done an incredible job
1: I know a lot of authors are kind of on the fence some some are like this is great yeah sure and some are like oh gosh please no don't do it how do you feel about people taking what you've written and doing fanfic on it you know are you are you one of those who are like yeah you know what if it gets you
4: thinking and you want to do something crazy with it go ahead or you're like no, no, no i guess people will do what they what they want to need to do if people are inspired to to write then it's kind of hard to see that as a bad thing isn't it it's like i know yeah you're right of course that for some people their creations really belong to them and that's sort of that's very much how i feel about them when i'm writing them But then once the book is out in the world, I feel a bit like, well, that that's that's the thing that I made. And now if you feel like you have ownership of those characters, who am I to tell you you don't? You know, it's it's yours now.
1: I just wondered, because when I was reading that wonderful chapter on the goddesses fighting over Paris and the the apple and the contest, I kept thinking to myself, oh, you know, I'm so sad. This is where the chapter ends. I want someone to take more of this. Yeah.
4: Carry that one on. Yeah. No, I know. I, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if people feel that way, they should, they should do it. Why would, you know, there's no reason why I should be the only person who gets to decide it. I'm not the, you know, guardian of these stories. I'm just the person who enjoyed telling them. That's true.
1: And sort of the, to wrap up ships, I know there's so many other women in history and mythology that you didn't get to include. If you could have had one more woman in there, who would it have been and why?
4: It would probably have been Hermione, I think, the daughter of Helen, because I always feel a little bit guilty that she's not there. There were so many contrasting parent-child relationships in Ships. And the mother-daughter thing was, it felt to me, was pretty well covered with Hecabe and Polyxena and Cassandra, but also with Clytemnestra and Iphigenia. And in a different way with, with Electra, who's almost entirely kind of off the page. So, you know, she equally has a bit of a claim. But the Helen Hermione relationship it's really difficult because the amount of time that Helen spends away is quite elastic sometimes it's 10 years but sometimes it takes her 10 years to get to joy so sometimes it's 20 years and so either way Hermione grows up without a mother and there's a devastating bit in in the Ovid Heroides letter from Hermione's perspective where her mum comes back from the war and she doesn't know which one her daughter is and she's asking "Yeah, you know, which one's Hermione and it's like oh your heart hurts so hard for her but in the end it just felt like a, a sort of I don't know, just a step too far away. And there are a few kind of freestanding chapters in, in ships and it, there was probably room for another, but I, I couldn't find a place to make it fit. And I thought there would be an Electra chapter. And then in the end, I got to the end of the Clytemnestra chapter and I was like, oh no, that's it. That's that's where the story ends. So yeah, often I thought there would be characters who appeared who didn't. I wish Dido had, had fitted in there because of course, you know, her her role in the story of, of the trojan war is is so incredibly co-opted by virgil but it didn't work in the end i was really confident she would fit and she didn't so you know these things happen i get to do a different set with the next two books so
1: yeah, I mean, I can only imagine it would have been really hard because I could definitely—I was going to say, yeah, I could definitely see wanting to do Dido because you had that lovely chapter for Cre— for Creusa. So I was like, oh, right, would have yeah, been there nice was definitely space.
4: You. Yeah, and then it turned out there wasn't space. I was, I was so confident I thought Aeneas would really work as a as a connect as connective tissue because there's a story of Dido which isn't there, and then obviously he he bumps into Andromache in the bit of her life which is the very end of ships and it just didn't work it's like dude you're entirely extraneous sorry we don't need you here so yeah I I thought it would I thought it would be and it wasn't maybe it's because the only thing connecting those two bits to the body of the story was him and it's like well this is a woman's story and so maybe that's why it just didn't stand. that it didn't
1: yeah I can definitely understand that rationale any interest in the future in
4: doing something maybe on perhaps uh, an Ariadne the next book is Medusa so she'll she gets my she gets me next and then The novel after that will be Medea so there's there's a little bit of connection there to Ariadne it's quite indirect but it is there so we'll see we'll see if Ariadne gets a go but yeah I'm very fond of Ariadne especially the Ovid version but yeah I don't know I feel like her story has been has been told more maybe yeah I'm probably more drawn to the to the bits which I feel like I don't know let alone other people not knowing
1: yeah I was gonna say how do you make this decision when you when you decide what comes next because I think so much of modern culture knows a lot of these women in a very specific way yeah uh, and so true. medusa obviously she's in pop culture so many different ways people feel like they know her but they don't actually know her they just see her as a component of a
4: bigger epic story which is tragic yeah so I'm very flat, happy that you're sometimes she's her. just an image she's just an icon oh. yeah no that was that was because writing her chapter in pandora's jar at the end of it i was still really angry for her just really, really angry on her behalf. And I thought, well, if you're this cross after you've given her 10,000 words, you know, she obviously needs more words. So that was easy. And then the one after that will be Medea. You know, I've been skirting around writing that for my whole life, I think. I've I've been writing about Medea since I was 16. She was my undergraduate dissertation. You know, she is, she's, we've, we've been skirting each other for a while. It, it's going to be time. I hope when I get that, it'll be time. Okay.
1: And so separate from what you are planning and working on all these wonderful things that are being cooked up is there any ancient story any ancient character
4: that you would like to see either written about Memnon. adapted, really yes yeah wow. i really i really want this i really want that that story of of basically the aethiopis uh, i want the Penthesilea bit. she obviously has a chapter in ships is, is part of it, and, and Memnon is the other part of it, and that, I can't wait for that book to come. I'm just, it's that thing where you go, it's sh- someone's surely doing it now, it must be in the post. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to when, when that book comes.
1: Oh, that sounds like it would be very, very fun. Yeah, I don't know, I, I, I spend more of my life than I would probably care to admit, dreaming about all the different characters' epics or something that might stand a chance of getting done, whether through, The Written word, film, TV, dare
4: I say it, musical interpretation? I'm here for musical interpretation. (laughs) I love musical.
1: Okay, because some people are like, I've found, interestingly, some people are so here for, I think there was a a group that did um, myth retellings through opera or something like that, and people were so turned off, just, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, myth has been
4: a pretty integral part of opera over the last few hundred years, eh? So, yeah, I, I, yes, I think I I understand why people feel like you have to, you know, mark mark out space and say this, this is allowed, but this isn't allowed. But I don't feel that way myself. I have no problem with someone making, you know, I grew up with, what was it called? Uh, Ulysses, whatever, Ulysses 31, is that right? Which is like a French, Japanese sci-fi cartoon about, Odysseus in the future and you go yep yeah, so I so I suppose I was brainwashed young into thinking that any version was interesting and you know at least any version has the potential to be interesting even if it's rubbish which you know lots of things are but you can you can tr- try and make something incredibly loyal to the original material that could still be boring so yeah I don't mind people doing anything with it in principle so long as they are interested in it and, and make something interesting
1: yeah get on that people there's some yes, hurry up. creative things that need to be done with with all this myth that uh, i think we'd both love to see so anyway at the end of each podcast i ask each guest if they will read the Shelley version of ozymandias are you ready i am ready and as soon as you've read it if you could just quickly maybe give us your thoughts on the importance of this poem what you like about it what you maybe don't like about it that would be awesome
4: look on my works ye mighty and despair nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck boundless and bare the lone and level sands stretch far away i think my favorite thing about that is that it tells us everything that we really need to remember about classics which is that the greatest things are lost and Sometimes all we have is a tiny, tiny fragment, you know, and you can get really caught up in the notion that whatever it is, 97, 99% of ancient literature is lost to us. What we have is such a tiny percentage of what was created. And yet what we have is still beautiful and remarkable. And I, you know, obviously the notion that whatever we make is going to be lost to time is something that we all need to bear in mind. But, you know, I can have an existentialist crisis without the help of Shelley, to be honest with you. So, yeah, I, I appreciate the gesture, but uh, I don't generally require it. I think what I require is the other thing, which is to say, you know, even in the enormous loss, there is still something which is worth finding.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of truth in that, for sure. Good. This poem, it's so interesting. It's been very interesting to see the diversity of opinion when it comes to what is it trying to evoke, what emotions, what does it show us. It's interesting because every time I read this, and it it may be due to my personal background, not only in classics, but with politics, because that is where I chose to start my professional career. It reads to me so much like it's a commentary on the fleeting nature of political power, power in general. but.
4: yeah yeah i like that bit in uh juvenile where the statues of sejanus are pulled down and turned into tomorrow's pots and pans you know it's just so good you're like oh man there just isn't a better description is there than you know that that but the fleeting nature of political power but also it's extreme the extreme danger of political success is that you you meet an untimely demise so yes i think you're right
1: yeah. Ramses would never have known, but I'm sure in the moment he was thinking, I am eternal. The eternal. I shall never be lost to time. Neither shall my civilization be lost to time. And yet we would have no idea who this man was if it weren't for people going around and getting curious and digging up things like his statue and saying, Lucky oh. classicists are here, eh?
4: Yeah. My goodness ecologist. for the archaeologists.
1: Yeah. People who want to go dig up some stuff in dirt.
4: We need those people.
1: And so since we seem to agree definitely on Ozymandias, what it's trying to tell us, the last question I always ask every guest is thinking about modern society the way it currently is, is there a modern version of an Ozymandias? What is something that we think is so great now that realistically, though, in 2000 years, is it really going to be that great? Are we going to just look back and say, ha, what were we thinking? That was a terrible idea.
4: I mean, I think the magic of this notion is that we are the people who won't ever know. You know, we can't know what about our society will stand up over the what, what will be the Parthenon and what will be Ozymandias? we're the last people who are going to know. And that's as it should be. I'm completely fine with not knowing. I'm delighted by it. In fact, I love the fact that future societies will get to make that call. And we didn't, we don't ever know. You know, it's like, like Arthur Conan Doyle was convinced that his serious fiction was being overshadowed by Sherlock Holmes. What's he remembered for? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah. So I love that sense that we don't always, even the people who make the thing don't always know. And certainly the people who receive the work don't always know what's important and what isn't and I am happy for that mystery to continue
1: Hmm. so that begs the question was Ramesses II happy he wouldn't know what became kingdom and his statue
4: I mean I think he probably wasn't happy and I think that was the I think that was a bad thing for him quite aside from whether it's good for us or not it can't possibly have been delightful for him not to know so I am content with not knowing in this regard there are enough things I feel like I should know that I don't that I'm perfectly happy to have a category of unknowable uh, in my life. I can live with it really easily.
1: That sounds perfectly fine. Let's just not add the like weight of the unknowing future of oh we be remembered. Yeah. You know what? That is that is a worry I'm very happy to not. Put it to one scary. side.
4: Yeah, I've got enough on. That's fine.
1: Thank you once again for taking pleasure. the time out of your day to join me. It was a real pleasure. Anytime.
3: Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is. the hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far
0: away